You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. We come here every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can watch us on the youtube.com forward slash master the NEC if you want to see the live stream. Or you can listen to the podcast over on electricianlive.com as well as watch the simulcast video stream there as well. So you have multiple opportunities to be able to partake in enjoying Electrician Live. So I'm excited to be able to bring you this show tonight. Tonight's show, and you know, sometimes we have special guests, sometimes we have just topics on code, a lot of times we're just talking electrical in general. But tonight I'm excited because we're going to talk about significant code changes to the 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code. Now, there was a lot of public inputs that came in for the 2020, well over 3,000. And once that was ratified and everybody got the first draft, then you had well over 1,000 plus public comments to what was done during the public input stage. And then it went to NITMAMS, and you finally come out with this 2020 edition. Now, the first state to adopt it was Massachusetts. Uh, and then slowly, it's going to be adopted all around the country. Uh, and right now, many states that are on the 2017 are going to gear up to be ready for the 2020. Now, this COVID-19 has put a kind of a, a halt a little bit on some of this code adoption processes. But I'm sure we're all going to get back into stream pretty, pretty quickly once all this is gone. And it will go away. And we'll get back to everyday life. And you're going to see the 2020 codes start to get adopted in many, many states and utilized in many jurisdictions. So in that process, it's up to me and you to, to learn these changes, to be aware of them. So again, we only get paid to do things once. We don't get paid to do them twice. So we want to make sure that we're following the code. Again, it's a minimum safety standard and we want to make sure that we meet it. So without further ado, let's start digging into these code changes. And in during the presentation, we're going to jump into the NFPA document so that we can see it for clarity. Uh, and again, this is utilizing the online edition and we're going to go over and look at it. So you should get your copy. You should have your copy of your 2020. This is my copy of the 2020. You see, I've got our stickers. If you want more information on how to get some of these stickers, just go to electricianpride.com. You can get the big ones like that right there. Or you can just go to electricianpride.com uh, and order any of the other designs that we have. If you want some of the smaller ones, those are the ones we're giving away for free. So how do you get those? You just email me at info, I-N-F-O, at masterthenec.com. And tell me in the subject line, say, hey, Paul, I want my stickers. And down in the body of the email, just tell me the stickers you want. We have one for the journeyman, one for the master. We have a generic electrician. We have electrical wizardry with a little wizard on it. And then we have one that's called the Code Mafia, which is a little skull on it. And then, of course, we have our normal podcast sticker. So uh, like you see the seal right up there. So if you're interested in any of those, just drop us an email. We'll be more than happy to get one of those out to you. If you want the bigger ones and all the other designs for electrical inspectors, engineers, and some of our Ohm's Wheel stickers, a great selection. Just jump on over to electricianpride.com. Okay? All right. So let's get into the, to what we came here to listen to tonight, and that is code changes. So let's go on and jump into the presentation, and we're going to start with our number 10 change. Now, again, 
these are my picks. There's tons of them I could have chosen from, but I wanted to start with things that I think are pretty significant for the everyday electrician. So that's what we started with. So again, there was a lot of work that went into this change by the code making panel six and a few individuals. So we definitely want to give them their props for that. And so we're going to start with number 10, which is the revamping or reorganization of article 310. Okay. So what took place? Well, during the 2020 development cycle, uh, a group of individuals got together that serve on the code panel and they said, what can we do to make 310 easier to understand? How can we make it flow a little better? Well, the first thing they realized, I believe, is they had to take that medium voltage and get it out of there. So 311 was created, Article 311, which is dealing with medium voltage, which incidentally is a new article for the 2020 edition. And that deals with the medium voltage, 2001 and higher, and leaves the 2000 and less to Article 310 where it needs to be. Now, the restructuring was the significant part because you and me are probably familiar with going to the ampacity, or at least we've gotten used to it by now, going to our ampacity tables, which were 310.15.B16. Well, many years ago, it used to be 310.16, and then there was a change. Well, in the 2020 code, you old timers and us that remember, and I'm dating myself, we are now going back to 310.16 for these tables. So it's 310.16, 310.17, 310.18. All of those tables that used to be 310.15B something are now going to have their own section. So 310.16 is going to give all the parameters, like not more than three current current conductors, an ambient temperature that exceeds 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit. Uh, all of those rules are still going to be now in a section 316. But the ampacity table is going to correspond with it now, and that's going to be table 316. So that is significant in order for that aspect. Now, the other things that changed, remember the little table that allowed the 83% uh, rule for uh, one and two family dwelling applications, 100 to 400 amps and all that, that used to be 31015B7? Well, now that is 310.12. So again, there you go. You have that allowance. You meet all those rules. You can use the 83% rule for conductor sizing. That is something that's been reorganized and just been moved a little bit. Now, if you remember the, the big list of the different types of insulated conductors that used to be in, I think, 310.104, well, now that's been moved up more logically to the front of 310. So that is 310.4 now. Okay, a lot of really, really good changes took place. So let's give a quick look real quick, give it justice, and let's go over and look at 310. So here's 310, and as you can see, uh, there's been a, a logical reformation, um, a lot of things, and here's that 310.4 table that used to be 310.104, got moved, and this is where you would look to see, for example, as you can see me scrolling down, here's your THHN that lets you know it's 90 degrees, in a dry and damp location, not wet, okay? That would be THWN-2. And as you go down, you'll see that right here. That is good for 90 in a dry or wet, but THWN is only good for 75, okay, in that application. So, interesting. So, again, at the end of the day, this is where you would go for all that. This tells you, Again, as you can see, all of your information when it comes to the mills and thickness of insulation. So it's just been kind of reorganized a little bit. 
But what's more significant is I'll scroll down a little bit so I can show you is remember I said about that rule 310.12? Well, you see right here, this is that single phase dwelling services and feeder rule. Here it is right now. It used to be 310.15B7. Now it's 310.12. So again, this is allowing you the 83% based on the service rating or the feeder rating, depending on what you're dealing with. And you meet all these caveats. And the table is back. Okay, it used to be banished from the code and then it ended up back in the informative annex. Now it's back in the code. Again, remembering this only applies if there's no adjustment of corrections. If you got to apply adjustment of corrections, then you're going to have to use the opacity values in 310.16 to do all that. But if they're not a condition you're dealing with, there you go, pull right from the table. So as you can see, all these significant changes. But what I really wanted to show you is, and again, with this used to be 310.15b2a for the ambient, uh, and 31015 B3A for the number of current current conductors. Now it's been changed. So it's 31015B is the ambient. And now it's 31015C for the adjustment factors. That's for the number of current current conductors. So just a slight shift in the numbering, but it's just a little easier to flow and, and kind of get your grip on what it's doing. Okay. Now also I want to go on down as you can see now. Each one now has a 31016. That's all the values that were given to us in the header of 31015B16, let's say previously. Now it's giving to you right here and it's making it clear. Rated conductors, zero volts to 2000. It's dealing with conductors 60, 75, and 90. That's the three columns as normal. It's dealing with 30 degrees C or 86 degree Fahrenheit ambient. That's where this table is utilized and not more than three current conductors. If it deviates from that, that's when we get into those adjustment and correction requirements, okay? And we're gonna have to make an adjustment and correction to the ampacities that are now given to us in 310.16, as you can see here, okay? So it's got all the information here, but you no longer see it say anything about 30 degrees Celsius and all that kind of stuff. That's gonna be held in the section itself and now you have the table that correlates with that section. So this was kind of done all through for this one, also done for 310.17, 310.18, 310.19, 310.20, and 310.21. All of that was done. The medium voltage stuff has been removed, and that has been moved over to 311. So that is new, okay? All right, so again... All these changes, again, we just got started. That was change number 10, but that was a lot of stuff involved in that change. So let's go back to the presentation and let's go to the next change. Now, change number nine. This is dealing with section 110.14. Now, 110.14 used to say it required a calibrated torquing tool. Well, that is no longer the case, although that is an option. You can utilize that, but... They removed the term calibrated. Now, I can tell you right now, uh, I'm in Texas, and I serve on the North Texas Advisory Board, as well as, you know, obviously get calls from all over the country wanting interpretation. And I can tell you, people would ask me, Paul, does this mean in 2017 code that I had to use a calibrated torquing tool to calibrate my feeder terminals, service terminals, receptacle terminals, fitting terminals? And the answer to that is yes. All of those fittings, all those terminations have a torquing requirement. 
and the manufacturers generally provide those. Now, this was already required in 110.3b before we even heard anything about 110.14. However, in the 2017 code, it required a calibrated torquing tool. But that is not the only way to do it. That's just one way to do it. So in order to avoid confusion, in the 2020 edition, they removed the term calibrated and put three informational notes that give you wisdom and guidance. Again, informational notes aren't enforceable. They're just good information. But a calibrated torquing tool wasn't the only way to do it. There's a lot of snap tools that actually uh, uh, that will snap at a specific inch pounds or foot pounds, depending on what manufacturer provided it for their piece of equipment, or there's just other options that can be done, okay? So calibrated torquing tool is still one of the options. So let's go on and look at 110.14 and see what it has to say. So we'll go back to the top. And again, this is electronic version. You can get a free version online as well at nfpa.org, get a free account, and you can always look at the free version online. And let's scroll down here to right here. Now it's changed and it now says electrical connections. Okay. And as you can see in here, there's significant changes that have taken place in here. But what we're want to focus on is D and that is the terminal connection torque. Okay. So I probably should have put D in there, but it's terminal connection torque is what we're dealing with. Now, you'll notice that it removed the term calibrated, but here's what it says. It says, tightening torque values for terminal connections shall be as indicated on equipment or in installation instructions provided by the manufacturer and approved means shall be used to achieve the indicated torquing value. Now, I can tell you uh, uh, inspectors did not or people did not like the term calibrated. Now it's in, in, in the inspectors didn't know how to address it, whether they needed a certificate, how did they verify it? But with this change, the approved means is whatever the AHJ is okay with. Can it be a torquing tool? Yep. Could it be maybe let's say one of those uh, devices that, that snap or break off or shear bolt that shears at a certain value? Is that adequate? Yeah, if the AHJ is okay with it they are the one who does the approval. So if they're okay with it, okay with it, okay? And I think a lot of times they're still gonna say, use a calibrated torquing tool, but that is just one method to do it. And that's what it kind of alluded to here, okay? So yeah, that's the big difference. Now I will remind you that we have what's called an Annex I, informative Annex I, which gives the values from the UL 46A, 46B values in lieu of something that maybe you don't get from the manufacturer, but really most of the time on the piece of equipment that'll have a value there. But if you don't, this is a way you can go, but I would always reach out to the manufacturer and for guidance as a first rule, okay? Not just because I used to work for NEMA, but because the manufacturers know best about their products. And I want to stall something in accordance with the manufacturer. So always reach out there first. But we do have the regurgitation of UL information in the informative annex I. Okay, but we all know that informative annexes aren't necessarily enforceable. So again, I would reach out to the manufacturer. But in lieu of that, at least I have something. Okay, give me something, right? Okay, let's look at the next change. 
So we see that that's the significance of that change there. So that is number nine uh, in our list. The next one is number eight. And this is basically a twofer deal. I'm giving you twofer in this one. I'm going to tell you one is the change to section 250.68c3. And the other is the change to 250.109. Now, the 250.109 is basically just clarification on something that we probably always done and it wasn't written real well. And now it's a clarity. So we'll save that for last for that after we finish 250.68. But 250.68 is simply making it very clear that you cannot use the rebar that's being utilized in a footer or foundation as an interconnection to other grounding electrodes. So I have a footer or foundation with, let's say, uh, a concrete cased electrode, and I have other electrodes at each end of the actual building's foundation, let's say, and I wanna use this to connect them all together. You cannot use the rebar as their interconnection means for these other electrodes, okay? So just making it clear in 250.68C3, and of course, we're gonna go look at that because we wanna make sure that we follow that up. So I'm gonna go to the browser, and we're gonna to go, to go back to the top here. And we're gonna to go to 250.68. And the good news about the online one is that you really can scroll quickly to what you need rather than all this flipping and stuff. So again, while I, while I don't like the fact that they don't provide you with the PDF version anymore, um, you can get a subscription and the subscription is what I recommend because you can see the changes. You can see what's highlighted. The free version is just going to give you the code. And that's perfectly fine if that's all you. You don't really need to worry about the changes. If you're just using code, just go to the code. But uh, I don't say anything should not substitute getting you a good old copy of the code book because it's you just need to have one. All right, so let's go to 250.68. And you'll see the change right here at the bottom. It says, a rebar type encased electrode installed in accordance with 250.52A3 with an additional rebar section extended from the location within the concrete foundation of footing to an accessible location. That's your stub up, by the way. That is not subject to corrosion shall be permitted for connection of grounding electroconductors and bonding jumpers in accordance with the following. Okay, so again, I stub it up. That right there is okay. And we had that stub up allowance a couple of cycles ago. And this is just reiterating that. Now, the one we want to focus on is C. Now, C says rebar shall not be used as a conductor to interconnect electrodes of grounding electrode systems. So we're not talking about the stub up where you actually you can make a connection to because you have to make a connection from your system to the electrodes. We're talking about you cannot use that rebar to tie all of your other electrodes together. That's what it's saying, okay? So that is the change there. Now, while we're here, let's go on and look at that 250.109 change. Now, the 250.109 change, again, to me, the significance of this is letting people know, hey, we never really said this before. And that was, what if I had an EMT that's being utilized as an equipment grounding conductor? Because it can, in accordance with 250.118, and I have two of those tubing systems, raceways, coming together and I have a metal box. And then I have them coming into the box and maybe I have splicing or bonding jumpers. Does that 
metal box suffice to connect the two raceways together and be considered part of the low impedance ground fault current path? Well, it never really was said before, although we assumed it was and we utilized it all the time. I mean, we have threaded uh, screws in the back and we would have uh, a screw in it. We'd have bonding jumpers. We're bonding all these metal boxes. But did they maintain the integrity? And the answer in the 2020 code is a resounding yes. So here's what it says. It says metal enclosures shall be permitted to be used to connect bonding jumpers or equipment grounding conductors or both together to become part of an effective ground fault current path. Something that we've done all along, but yet the code really didn't say it, but now it says it, okay? So raceway, raceway, metal box, the metal box does not break that path. It can be considered part of that effective ground fault current path. So now you see, that's why I consider it a twofer because I just wanted to throw that one in with the rebar one we were just talking about. So kind of give you a twofer there. So maybe it's a 11 top changes. Maybe that's what it should be called. Anyway, all right, let's get back to the presentation. All right, so that's your change uh, to make it very clear. Uh, and again, the 250.109, we probably won't even hiccup on that one. We did that anyway, but now it's just codified, if you will. But I can see where people would have a problem with the 250.68C3 and wanting to use that rebar that's all interconnected. Can't do it, all right? So, good change. All right, the next one is number seven. And I serve on code panel 17 as well as code panel five. So this is kind of a double for me. Uh, code panel five one previously, and of course, code panel 17 here. Uh, this one was debated quite a bit during our code development uh, meetings. And this was, and, and I didn't know, we had a lot of, and I don't know whether or not I agree or not with this one. The problem is that, Around swimming pools, you do have significant hazards and things can happen over time. So many people were concerned with the longevity of many of the terminations and connections dealing with swimming pools. Uh, and I think we could probably take some things really overboard. I don't know how jurisdictions are going to deal with this one. Um, now, they might say, look, this is a money generator for them. Or they might say, look, we have significant issues with swimming pools and we want to be able to get in there later and do a after the final inspection type of inspection, maybe periodically, maybe annually, biannually, however they decide to do it. This rule is now giving that ability within the National Electrical Code. And so again, there's going to be a lot of things that people are going to have to work out through jurisdictions to do this and coming up with permitting and how they're going to do it and what the process and everything like that. But the change here was into uh, section four. And that was, as you see on the screen, this is going to allow inspections after the installation for not only the inspections, but also testing. If they want to make sure that the equipotential bonding grid is adequate, or if they come up with some type of testing procedure that they want to do, then a jurisdiction can add that. So they might be keeping a list of all the swimming pools that get done starting in the 2020. And then mandatory annual inspection, and maybe they create a division that does that. Um, and again, maybe that goes under the property and maintenance division. I don't know, but this is going to allow the AHJ and have the ability for them to require additional inspections and testing after you've received your final inspection on your swimming pool. 
Okay, so this is what's being introduced. This is what's in there. So again, many people aren't aware of this uh, because it's rare. If I have a, a dwelling and you give me the CO and you leave, if you were to tell me that you could come into my house a year later and make sure I haven't done anything or changed anything, I'm going to tell you no, and I'm going to tell you hell no. But now when it comes to swimming pools, they have the right to do that. And they obviously are going to have the right to come on your property and be able to do this. Okay. So again, many things that jurisdictions are going to have to think about with this one. And again, you're going to have to digest this change. And, but that is the change to section four and it's going to allow it. So just so we show you that it's there and you think I'm not making this up, let's go to the code and we're looking at 680.4. So we'll go back to the top and we'll go down to 680. And it'll be pretty quick because it's right there at the beginning. And oh, you see a lot of definitions in there. But here you go. Brand new. You see the little N. The authority having jurisdiction shall be permitted to require periodic inspections and inspection and in testing. Okay. So again, how you deal with it. But the code says what it says. And we're going to have to see what happens. But again, I can tell you many jurisdictions modify things out, but this one's going to increase revenue for the jurisdiction. So we'll see how that works out. But I don't imagine many people are going to take this out. All right. Now, there might be some arguing and things like that, but uh, we'll see. Probably just, and in most jurisdictions might just ignore it and not even do anything anyway. Okay. All right. So let's go back to the PowerPoint. All right. So that's your seven. That's number seven change. Now, number six change that I've selected here is important for those non-dwelling applications. And this has to do with the general lighting calculation. So in the 2017 code, if you were at 220.12, you knew that it would send you, it would tell you the dimensions you need to consider in order to get the square footage area of a building. And then it would ultimately send you to table 220.12 and you would find the VA for that specific occupancy. Well, it used to also have dwellings in there. So in the 2020 code, dwellings was removed. And I'll show you where that is here in a second. But that was moved out of 220.12. So 220.12, the table, only deals now with non-dwelling occupancies. And there's been changes. Some of the VA values per square foot have dropped. Some have increased. And some have remained the same. Now, all of this was based on testing that was done by ASHRAE, which is an engineering association, and they looked at usage. And so some of these numbers were, were changed and modified and moved around based on some applications where occupancies did draw more power statistically than some of the others, and some were less power hungry when it comes to the lighting. So again, that was significant when you're designing. So for those engineers out there who are a designing non-dwelling occupancies, you're going to notice that your VA values may be different than they were before. Uh, another significant change here is when we're dealing with non-dwelling occupancies, typically the lighting would be on for three hours or more. So we would have to treat that as a continuous load. Well, something interesting here, the note that was added under table 220.12 now directs us to say that you don't have to apply the 125% for continuous load anymore for the general lighting. That it is already figured in to all of these VA values for 220.12. So it's already in there. So again, it removes another step. 
Now, in many cases, I think the majority of, of designers probably even forgot to add the general lighting as uh, any lighting source that was actually considered a continuous load. So probably it's not going to change what they're doing because now it's going to already be taken care of when they go to that table. Okay. So again, that's in the note that makes, uh, and remember notes are very much applicable to the table. It's the informational notes that don't apply. They're just good information. And they might send you somewhere with a rule that may apply to something, but informational notes in themselves are just good information. So with that, do with that, let's, let's make sure that we go look at this new table and look at this note and, and make sure we are clear how it applies. And then we'll look and see what happened to that dwelling application. So let's go to the browser and we got to go back to the top and we're going to go to 220 and we'll scroll down to 220.12. So you see that now it says to the general says lighting loads for non-dwelling occupancies. And then of course you have the general is going to tell you to go to table 220.12, which we're looking at a little bit right here uh, and all that. So again, it's got all that information. I will note something uh, that you do have a new 220.11, which is floor area, and that applies to dwellings uh, application, all right, for this. So look, it says, um, and but not just dwellings, but also buildings. But what they did was they, they pulled that out of 220.12, and they gave it its own section. So that's 11, really wasn't part of this change, but we'll look at it. It says the floor area for each floor shall be calculated from the outside dimensions of the building dwelling unit or other area involved. It says for dwelling units, the calculated floor area shall not include open porches, garages, and unused or unfinished portions not adaptable for future use. So that's no change. It just was put in its own section and was taken out of 220.12. Now, why is that important? Well, because the other than dwelling applications or non-dwelling occupancies is really what engulfs us in 220.12. So the dwelling stuff was removed and before I get into 220.12, I'll just show you. That was removed and relocated somewhere else. All right. Now, where was that located? Right here. 220.14J. That's what now deals with everything to do with dwelling units. That's where you're going to get your three VA per square foot. So again, just kind of how it kind of lays out just makes it a little easier to understand now. Let's leave that where it needs to be. Okay. All right. So let's kind of move back up so we can talk about our general lighting. So here's our general lighting for non-dwelling. And you see the list here, some changes in the list, some words, some, some occupancies have slightly been modified and they have little, little asterisk numbers, uh, letters beside it that is gonna send you to somewhere down here. And so you see all of this has been changed a little bit. But what we wanna notice is that you see that these VA uh, per square foot has changed and this note. And the note says, and I'll put it here so you can see it. It says the 125% multiplier for continuous load as specified in 210.20a, that's where we get the directive for that, is included when using the load units in this table for calculating the minimum lighting load for a specific occupancy. And that would be those that are listed here. So it's already figured in. So again, it just saves you one step and I think, again, I think many people forgot about that anyway. So they were like, oh, I forgot the continuous load for the lighting. Um, and so now it's just already factored in and you don't have to worry about it. So again, this is a change that's going to maybe make design a little bit easier for the uh, design professionals. Okay, so 
Makes sense. And, and all of this was based on testing and data that was submitted to that code-making panel for them to make that decision. Again, you're not going to get any change in the National Electrical Code, really, unless you justify it or substantiate it. Okay, a lot of people think that the code panels are dominated by manufacturers, and there's a lot of them on there. There's no doubt. And some changes still make you go, hmm. But there is equal representation. So if there's something that the manufacturers may be pushing, you still have to get buy-in from all of those at the table, and they're not all manufacturers. They're inspectors. There's inspection associations. There's all different types. There's, there's engineering associations represented. So everybody's got to buy into it. And usually the manufacturers are really good at substantiation and they have the data to back things up. And so that's just usually why certain things get in the code because they have what it takes to back it up. So again, that's kind of a little beyond the topic, but you get the, you get the idea. So this is significant with design. Okay. And it removes the dwelling applications from it and gives them their own 220.14J to deal with that. Okay, So the process hasn't changed. It's just been kind of dissected a little bit. And I think it's made easier to understand personally. Right? So let's get back to the presentation. All right, the next change is kind of a two-parter. Okay, This is change number five. And this is dealing with 210.8A and B uh, in the general charging rule for 210.8 change, okay? So again, significant. Anytime we're dealing with grounding and bonding, uh, it's significant. Anytime we're dealing with conductor sizing, it's significant. Anytime we're dealing with safety aspects, it's significant. And 210.8 is dealing with GFCI. So that is significant. So it's right up there. And so we had to have some clarity on measurements uh, and there's been some additions to where GFCIs are going to apply to the receptacles in specific locations. So let's kind of look at that. Now, the first thing we want to cover is measurements. So 210.8 gave us in the 2017 code, it said, look, when you're making that measurement uh, and let's say, for example, we're dealing with the sink and it's a top inside edge and it can't be a receptacle that's within six feet of the top inside edge it has to be GFCI protected. Okay. How did you measure that six feet? Well, it's kind of as the crow flies, you know, as the cord would be done. You don't follow the contour. You simply go from point A to point B. Well, the problem in it is that in that measurement in the 2014, if you had a door, then it was like the door wasn't there and you measured through the door or through a doorway. Well, then the 2017 came about. And the 2017 code said, no, 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 wait a minute. If I have a receptacle that's under the counter, and I'm talking about a kitchen sink, and I need to be, uh, any receptacle within six feet of the top inside edge of that sink has to be GFCI protected. But it can't penetrate a door or through doorways, you would stop that measurement. So what happened was, is if I had a receptacle that was directly under the sink and I'm starting that measurement, if the cabinet door was there, that measurement stopped. So the receptacle under the sink, which was within six feet, did not require GFCI protection. And that might be the disposal if you use a cord and plug. It might be a dishwasher receptacle if you use an cord and plug op uh, op uh, option to do that. Of course, you can hardwire those as well. But if you're using that option, now... It's all driven to the receptacle, okay? So in the 2020 code, they removed the reference to doors and doorways. 
So in the 2017 code, for example, if I had a master bathroom and a master bedroom, and just around the corner where you have that entry doorway from the master bath to the master bedroom, if I had a receptacle right there, and let's say that receptacle was within six feet of the top inside edge of the bathroom sink, it would, uh, you'd be, since in 2017 code, because that's a, a doorway there, that measurement would stop. Even though I theoretically could get a six foot cord and reach that receptacle, that doorway stopped the measurement. In the 2020 edition, that's gone now. The doorway or door cannot stop the measurement. So the receptacles under the sink are going to be GFCI required if they're within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink. Um, the receptacle in the master, master bedroom, if it's within six feet of the top inside edge of the bathroom, which is adjacent to it, if it's within six feet, it's going to require GFCI protection now because the doorway or a door does not break the measurement anymore. Now, windows still break the measurement, but doors or doorways do not break the measurement anymore. Now, let's talk about the dwelling unit changes. And rather than go over all the dwelling unit, you're probably well familiar with that. Let's just talk about the changes. Now, the first significant change was it used to be it only applied to receptacles that were 15 or 20 ampere. That is gone now. So for dwelling units, it applies to all receptacles that are 125 rated through 250 volt rated, okay? So we've removed the 15 to 20. So what's significant about that? Well, this means that let's just say um, I have a laundry area, which is required to have GFCI protection on the receptacles in a laundry area. Now, if I have my dryer that's in that laundry area, it is going to require it to have GFCI protection because that is going to be a 250 volt rated 240 volt uh, branch circuit on a 250 volt rated receptacle. And that's gonna require it to have GFCI protection now. What about if I'm in a kitchen? So in a kitchen, uh, receptacles that serve the countertop are required to be GFCI protected. But what if I have a, a range receptacle and that range receptacle, maybe it's an efficiency kitchen of a dwelling unit. And maybe that receptacle for that range is within six feet of the top inside edge of that kitchen sink. Guess what? It's gonna require it to have GFCI protection. Okay, so significant change. Now, the other thing that applies here is that it also deals with single phase and it's 150 volts or less to ground. So again, 120 to 40 volt applications, that is 120 to ground, so that's gonna be 150 volts or less. And in most, since this is dwelling units, pretty much all of our 122 40 volt applications are going to apply. All right. So again, anytime that I'm going to have 150 volts between any phase to ground or less, this rule is going to kick in on all of those receptacles rated 125 through 250. Okay. Significant change for this. Okay. The other rationale behind this is it really didn't matter whether it was just 15 or 20. You still have the same hazard, whether it was 30, 40 or 50 amp rated receptacles in these locations in the proximity or in the specific areas that require this requirement, there's a hazard there. So it really, it wasn't, you know, so this still required it for the 15 and 20. I mean, again, when we say all, it's all, but now it just encompasses a bigger picture. Next change we have is to item five, and that was dealing with basements. Now it used to say that GFCI receptacle requirements in those only applied 
in unfinished basements or portions of unfinished basements. Well, that has been changed. So this is significant because now all receptacles rated 125 through 250 volt that are located inside of basements or in basements are going to now be required to be GFCI protected. Okay, all of them. Again, 150 volts or less to ground, which is basically going to be all your 120 volt receptacles. Okay, so um, 120 volt branch circuits feeding 125 volt rated receptacles are all going to be GFCI protected now. But it also means that in those basements, if I have a 30 amp receptacle, 240 volt branch circuit and 250 volt rated receptacle is now going to have to have GFCI protection. So maybe I'm putting my dryer down there. Maybe I have a, a, a basement and in my basement's got my dryer. It's 30 amps, 250 volt rated receptacle, 240 volt branch circuit, going to require GFCI protection now on that. Okay, so that's significant, especially when you have to think about those things because they're not cheap. Okay, nobody's giving you these two pole breakers. Okay, they, they ain't cheap. So again, it, should, it is going to add to the cost, but again, it's safety driven. It's GFCIs. We know they work and slowly they're expanding even, well, I shouldn't say slowly. Look, GFCIs have been around since the 60s. So it's very proven technology. So it is advancing, advancing, and now we're getting more and more and more coverage. In a lot of cases, things that were picked up in the other than dwellings is now being absorbed into the dwelling units and vice versa. Some things that were dwelling unit requirement for GFCIs are now being picked up in the other than dwellings. So they're kind of coming uh, together and harmonizing in those applications. Uh, the next thing that was added was item 11, which is new for the dwellings. And this was uh, applies GFCI to indoor damp as well as indoor wet locations. Now, maybe I have a mud room that comes in that has a floor drain and has a sprayer. And again, your jurisdiction is going to determine whether that is a damp or wet location. Either or, it doesn't really matter. You're going to have GFCI protection on any receptacles that would be in that environment. Okay. Again, this is a receptacle requirement, 210.8a. Right? Okay, so that's generally the changes that took place when dealing with the uh, dwelling unit application. So now let's move to... The next one. So this one is part two, and I am just barely out of the way down here. So that's good. Maybe it's like I planned it. All right. So for those that are over listening to us on the podcast, there's also streaming presentations over on the um, the YouTube.com forward slash Master the NEC page. Uh, so again, some are watching a presentation while you are listening to the podcast. Okay. So. Now we're dealing with other than dwelling. Now remember, the same rule applies to the door of the doorway. Again, doesn't break a measurement anymore. But we have some other changes that took place dealing specifically with other than dwelling units. Now I have seven things that I'm going to talk about on this slide. So we'll try to cover the, each one of them and make it clear as we move through it. Number one, the same application for dwelling applies here. It doesn't just apply to 15 and 28 receptacles. It applies to all 125 volt through 250 volt receptacles, okay, that are in the locations that we're going to talk about. And we're going to deal with the changes, not the all of the locations. But the significance here is that, again, just like in the dwellings, this rule now applies to 125 volt through 250 volts. Now, there is some caveats to this. It applies to single phase branch circuits rated 150 volts or less to ground. 50 amperes or less, okay, that's your single phase. And it also applies to three-phase 
brand circuits rated 150 volts or less to ground 100 amperes or less, okay? So again, that is what we're dealing with. And then you get a list of all the locations that you folks are probably more than familiar with. But I wanna talk about what has changed. Now, item two, which was dealing with kitchens, has changed. Now, kitchens is a defined term in the National Electrical Code. But you had other locations like coffee houses, sub shops, ice cream parlors that had food preparation services, uh, uh, food preparation countertops or provisions for that. Or they might even have had cooking provisions there or they might even have both. And but they didn't qualify necessarily as a kitchen to require those receptacles uh, to be GFCI protected. Well, now we have the language that adds it and it says that it can have, that has either permanent provisions for food preparation or cooking, or it could have both, are now required GFCI protection on those receptacles. Which receptacles? All of those that are 125 volt through 250 volt, okay, are gonna require GFCI protection. If it's single phase and they're 150 volts or less to ground and they're 50 amps or less, then they're gonna require the GFCI protections. If there are three phase brand circuits, 150 volts or less to ground, and there are 100 amps or less, they're going to require GFCI protection now. So again, kitchens had provisions, but now we're, we're, we're kind of moving and hitting those locations that are not necessarily going to qualify as kitchens. Okay, So significant, especially significant for those little uh, coffee houses like the Subways or the Caribou coffee houses, things like that. So Significant for them, uh, but it does raise the level of safety, okay? The next one is item six. The added the term damp location to what was already wet location. Just makes sense. You heard us just talk about it for the dwelling units. Same hazard exists, so why shouldn't you do it? So again, so it's going to now require GFCI protection added to damp and wet locations, okay? Uh, item number eight added the term accessory buildings. Now we had GFCI requirements for receptacles dealing with garage, service bays, and similar locations. Well, now we have added accessory building to the list. So, okay, makes sense. We, we had that requirement for dwellings. The same hazards are there. Might as well require it to also have GFCI protection for any receptacles that are located in accessory buildings that are accessories to the, to the other than dwelling occupancy, okay? The next is item 11, and we added laundry area. So this was already covered in dwellings, but as you can see, it's making its way over to the other than dwelling application. So this is gonna to apply to commercial laundries. This might apply to multifamily dwelling applications where I have a on-site laundry facility this would apply because this is very much going to fall under the commercial aspect, not the dwelling aspect, okay? Um, so again, going to require it. And again, all 125 volt through 250 volt receptacles going to require GFCI protection. And item 12 was added, and this was for bathtub and shower stalls where receptacles are located within six feet are going to have to have GFCI protection. Now this made sense. We, we had this provision for dwelling units um, but again, many people work in commercial industrial applications and they might have areas that might have bathtubs or might have shower stalls. And 
if there's receptacles located near it, you got you have a risk, you have a hazard. People sometimes will take showers and bathtubs and plug things into it, and we just have to raise that level of safety. So it just made sense. So item 12 catches us up on that, and that is going to provide the protection via those GFCI requirements where the receptacle is within six feet of the bathtub or shower stall, okay? So I don't think we need to go look those up. Those are pretty self-explanatory uh, when it comes to 210.8b, but those are your, your significant changes when it came to 210.8, okay? Now, there are other ones that took place. For example, the, the, the allowance for the boat hoist, which was 210.8c, that has been moved to 555, okay? And you have the... The 210.8D that used to be dishwasher for dwellings got moved to 422.5. Now it applies in 422.5 to all dishwashers, not just dwelling units. So again, we had some relocation, but we're only going to talk about this change uh, because again, we could, we could go in detail. There's so many changes and we're, we're, we're pushed for time. So we want to make sure we cover. So the next change is number four. And this is dealing with surge protective devices. Now, you probably heard me talk about this in other episodes. Now, this applies to the service of dwelling units. So the dwelling unit services are going to require a surge protective device now. Now, people have been doing this for, for years anyway. It makes good sense. But again, many people think, well, should this be optional? Because maybe I don't want surge protection. There's a lot of homes that don't have it, and they're fine. Well, the problem is more and more and more homes are getting electronic devices that are safety driven. The fire alarms, some people are getting total alarm systems. Uh, people are getting uh, high-end appliances. And, you know, again, so you can say, well, that's monetary, Paul. What's the safety? Well, what about GFCIs and AFCIs and their internal componentry? Very sophisticated electronics. And spikes and surges can play havoc on them cause them to prematurely fail. So as we get into these, these safety aspects and things that are, that are in these structures, uh, especially when we're dealing one and two family, that we have to be able to have some type of element of stopping sudden surges from getting in. Now, with this rule, okay, it is requ requiring it to be either a type one or type two SPD. Now, a little bonus change. It used to be for lightning arresters, which are typically type one, and surge protectors, which are typically type two, and there's three and a four type as well, and even a five type, but the ones we deal with typically are type one, two, three, and four. They've been relocated to a new article in 242, which is over voltage, okay, right next to overcurrent, logical location. So we kind of relocated that, not part of this change, but the significance here is I will let you have a type one which can be on the supply side of a service disconnect all the way up to many cases, the point of attachment. They allow them there anywhere on the supply side uh, on the premise, but you also allow to have what's called a type two. And that's typically in the panel or immediately adjacent it. And those are on the load side of the service disconnect. That's typically the type two. Now there is an allowance in here for me to have that type two downstream at the first remote distribution panel. So I, I do have some leeway here, but the point is most people will install this at the service, either in the service panel, some of them bolt right onto the bus, some of them just go immediately adjacent, 
Um, keeping those conductors as short as possible directly to the overcurrent protective device. So this is a requirement. Now, the other interesting thing about this, and this one we will go look up, is that if you do a service change, an upgrade or whatever, this is a retroactive. It's going to require you to do something when you do that service change. You're going to have to make this rule happen. All right, let's look at 230.67. So we'll go to our browser and we'll go back to the top. And we'll go to 230 right here and we'll go to 67. Okay, so 230.67, you see the little in here, means it's all new. And it tells you that all services supplying dwelling units shall be provided with surge protective devices. Okay, and it tells you where they can be located. Remember I said here, it either an integral part of the service equipment or located immediately adjacent. Now, again, people argue the term immediately adjacent. To me, immediately adjacent is directly next to it, not 10 feet away. It's right next to it. Everybody wants to argue that, okay? So within it or immediately adjacent, okay? I'll let y'all argue the semantics of that. All right, now, see where it says that location? It says, uh, oh, excuse me, back up. It says type, type one or type two. And of course, we can get that information when we go over to 242 if we wanted to know kind of more details of type one and type two. Remember, they were relocated from 280 and 285 now. Those are now gone. And it says 242, so new article. Again, a bonus change. New article, 242. I oh, like all these bonuses. All right, so here's the interesting one. Notice 230.67D right here. It says, where service equipment is replaced, all of the requirements in this section shall apply. This section being section 67. What does that mean? Service upgrade, like for like, depending on your jurisdiction, they say, oh, well, like for like. You don't have to bring AFCIs into the picture because it's a like for like. You're not extending the brand circuit. All that kind of stuff, and we have rules for that. Here it's saying, uh-uh. <laughs> Here's what I'm telling you to do. If you replace it, you're going to bring it up to this rule. And so you're going to have to install a surge protective device. So great for electrical contractors. Start pushing this now, get people in existing dwellings to do this. Again, it, it, it does, it is a benefit, trust me. In an area where lightning prone damage can play havoc on electrical systems, uh, not just from lightning surges, but other transient voltages and things like that that can be imposed on the electrical system, they are a benefit. Now, a lot of misconceptions here is, for example, if I have a real high-end computer, which I happen to have, then what happens is I also have surge protection at a second level, which is at my actual equipment, okay? So there's a first line of defense and a second line. I like to think of this as I have a lake with a dam. If the lake overfills the surge, then it goes over the walls, a certain amount of current could leak out, and I want to be able to capture it and stop it locally at my expensive piece of equipment. So it's a two-tiered approach. However, this rule doesn't care about what's in the house. At this point, it's talking about the surge protective devices at the service application, okay? So this is a significant change. It is going to add it. Now, they're not overly expensive. Um, really good ones um, can be anywhere from... Uh, $125 up to as much as $300, $400, okay? But again, look at the product, look at the warranties, look at what it covers. A lot of times these come with really, really good warranties, okay? Replacement warranties, all right? So just a good change, good thing to be aware of. So just kind of 
Remember that that is, to me, significant change. It's going to add cost, but it does bring significant value to the home. It, it does protect electronics, and it's just a good move. Um, again, you don't want to hear me say this is just a money grab by the manufacturers. It could be argued that way, but I do know SPDs work, and they're very effective in yeah, and also in 2017, we saw a wide expansion of the requirements for SP, SPDs anyway. So this is only logical that this would take place. Okay. All right. Let's get back to our presentation and move on. Code change number three, 110.22. Why does this become important to me and why did it make number three on my list? Well, this rule, and we'll look at it. This rule talks about, and again, we're not talking about one and two family dwellings. And we're not talking about where the disconnect is located next to the equipment to a point where it's pretty darn obvious that this disconnect works that piece of equipment. Then I don't need to identify the source of power to this disconnect if it is pretty evident right there that that's my equipment, right? Okay. And it doesn't have to be the case. And again, in a one and two family dwelling, this is not a requirement. So anything other than one and two family dwellings or other than the obvious, then it's something that's going to be required. So let's look at this. So this is about identifying the disconnection means in 110.22. The disconnection means now requires the identification of the source circuit to be supplied on that disconnecting mean. So let's look at 110.22 and see if we can get a better understanding. Because this is just going to mean that you're going to have to start not only labeling your disconnects, but you're going to have to let me know what panel feeds this disconnect or what breaker in what various panels in a building feed this breaker okay, or this disconnect, okay, which could be a breaker, could be a fuse, whatever. All right, so let's kind of go look at the code and we'll look at 110.22. So let's kind of go back to the top. And we'll go to 110, general requirements for electrical installations. And we'll go down to 110.22. So here's your identification of a disconnection means. So here's your general, and you see the grade out here. It says each disconnect means shall be legibly marked to indicate its purpose unless located and arranged such that the purpose is evident. So that's the first rule that we just talked about where I said, look, if it's freaking evident, no need for me to indicate, okay, markings to indicate the purpose, okay? Right? It's, it's, it's evident. Now, here's the significance of the next change. Other than two, a one and two family dwellings, the marking shall, I mean, shall include the identification of the circuit source that supplies the disconnection means. So if I have switch gear, feeding a panel, feeding another panel, and I have a disconnect for something, and I need to say on this disconnect, maybe to a motor or whatnot, where is it being fed from? And he needs to tell me. So not only is it telling me what this mode, what this disconnect is, the purpose of it, okay? But it also needs to, because unless it's, it's evident, it might be evident next to a motor, but there's many cases where it might not be evident. So I need to say what it is. But more significant now is I have to say where the source circuit is that's feeding it. So it's going to require multiple labeling. Because now once I get back to that panel, it's going to have that panel needs to say where it is fed from. So it's a chain of events here that's going to 
increased safety, really. It's going to mean that people that need to shut power down to equipment are going to know where to go specifically to be able to shut it down. And if I need to go to that location and now I need to shut down something in that enclosure, it'll tell me where I go to the feed that supplies that enclosure. So again, it, it's just a, a chain of being able to follow now and be able to safely shut things down. Love this rule. I think that people think you got to put labels anyway, unless obviously it's evident. And again, it doesn't apply to one and two family. Um, I'm always a believer in the more is better for labels. And I also, be honest with you, I always use labels when I was a contractor as an advertising opportunity. Always had my logo on it and the information out to the side. Always did my logo with my number or my web address. It's just all an opportunity for marketing, in my opinion. I had somebody say, well, it's also an opportunity for lawyers to find you. And I'm like, hey, I ain't worried about that. As long as I'm doing it to code, I want that lawyer to find me. Maybe he needs some electrical work done. I don't care. I don't discriminate. So anyway, so there you go. That's the rule. And it's pretty significant, in my opinion. It does raise the level of safety. Makes sense. All right, so now let's go to code change number two. Significant especially in those commercial industrial applications where this gets done all the time. It's the number of service disconnects. Now, me and you are probably grown up to, to understand that there's this thing called the six disconnect rule. And for many, many, many years, what people did was they might bring service conductors into a big cabinet, and then you had six breakers, six service disconnects under the six disconnect rule. So one might have fed this panel, one this panel, one this panel, one this panel, but there was only six in there. And they were all in one single enclosure. So they typically were fed in and then went into main lugs and then it fed the bus and you had the six individual breakers. And then for years, this was also referred to in, in residential applications as split bus panels where you might have six at the top and then one feeds the bottom, but it still met the six disconnect rule, okay? And so, again, we don't have the split buses anymore, but there's variations of installations that have enclosures with those six breakers in it. Well, under the 2020 National Electrical Code, are you ready for this? That can no longer be done. And it is going to send a ripple effect through commercial industrial applications because I see this also in data centers all the time where they're coming in and they're feeding. Now, remember, this is not applying to feeders. Because feeders have overcurrent protection ahead of it. You can shut it off. That's why you have that identification rule we just saw in 110.22. Makes sense now. But you can shut it off at the feeder and now this panel is dead. So this rule is not applying to feeders. This only applies to services. Why? Because in the, you could not shut down the bus. So if you were working in it, you had an exposed bus. Now, granted, we have barrier requirements now in 230 for the, for the lugs so they can't come in inadvertent contact. And that was relocated from 408 over to 230. I get that. But if you are working on a breaker, that bus is live. There was literally no way to shut that down. And so under this rule, you have some options now. But having six breakers in one single cabinet, no longer going to be able to be done with the 2020 National Electrical Code. Now, you still have the two to six disconnects. So the, you have always have, you have one service to a building in 230.2, but there's other allowances for more than one, okay? So you can have up to six 
service disconnects grouped by 230.72 in one location. We, we understand all that. But you just can't put it all in one cabinet anymore. But what can you do? Well, you have some options. I could get a single service disconnect individual enclosure, and I could have six of them grouped at the same location, and that would be okay. And that is six separate service disconnects. Perfectly fine. And it's been done many times before. So again, nothing really new. It's just making it clear that they have to be separate. Okay, so that's still allowed. What else could you do? Well, 230.71B also allows you to do something we've probably done for years as well. And that was, can I have six individual panels with a main breaker in them? Absolutely. That's six separate service disconnects, all grouped in one location, perfectly fine. Not an issue, still allowed. Well, what else is it gonna allow me to do under 230.71B? Well. I can have switchboards. And if I have switchboards with separate vertical sections and I have a service disconnect in each separate vertical section, then I can have up to six vertical sections there and each one of them have their own breaker. Perfectly okay to do. And again, not so sure how many switchboards come in all those different vertical sections, but again, it's gonna spawn manufacturers to do that and produce that and you have literally separated vertical sections, okay? Uh, and then the last one is switch gear or meter centers. Now, switch gear, you have individual enclosures, okay? And in the meter centers, in this case, we're doing the say the six disconnect rule. I have where say I come down from an overhead service and I come down to a, let's say a, a, a meter stack that has six individual enclosures with six individual meters, with six individual breakers. And that is very common. You've been able to buy those for years. So this would be perfectly okay. Now that six is the max. I could have two, three, four, five, six. And they all are grouped at the same location. Still perfectly acceptable. Each one of those bays are considered a separate enclosure for the utilization of this rule. And so again, perfectly acceptable to do that. Typically, like with switch gear, all of the live... Uh, buses are all towards the back. So being able to utilize it and pull out something in one of those bays is still going to be okay. You're not going to come in contact with that back uh, bus or again, you're going to have to really work hard to do it. Okay. But again, you do have separate enclosures there and that was this rule. So the six disconnect rule is still alive and well. It's just, you've got to be careful in how you apply it. So some people are going to be shocked that you can no longer have six breakers in a single enclosure or cabinet and meet the six disconnect rule. Mm, not going to be allowed anymore in the 2020 National Electrical Code. Okay. Now we'll go look at that code rule so that you can kind of see what we're talking about in 230.71b. So let's kind of go to the browser and we'll go back to the top and we'll go to 230. And we'll just kind of scroll down. And you see right here, 230.71. Again, we have the list in A that tells you what's not to be considered a service disconnect. So you don't interrupt your six counts, okay? Again, like for example, surge protected devices disconnects for that. That's not a service disconnect. So don't count that in the number. That's all that's saying. So here's your change down here. 
And as I said, here you go. Separate enclosures with the main service disconnection means. We talked about that. That's maybe just a single cabinet with one main breaker in it. Maybe you're feeding in and feeding right out. And you have six of them. And they're feeding a panel. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, it'll be feeders on the other end of that service disconnect going to wherever they want to go. Um, and then, of course, you got the panel boards. Again, group panels, six of them. It could be grouped anywhere from two to six. And, of course, here's your rule for the switchboards. Again, where you have separate vertical sections that are separating those sections. And then, of course, here's the switch gear in the meter center, as I was just explaining. Okay, Each have separate compartments. Now, you also have informational notes, which kind of remind you and say, oh, by the way, here's an example of separate enclosures uh, with main service disconnection means. Uh, include, but not limited to, like motor control centers. You know how they're separated by different sections? Uh, things like that. Circuit breaker enclosures, fused disconnects, again, transfer switches. All these things could be examples of separate enclosures. And you get to group up to six of them in that one location. Okay, so that's, that's just kind of telling you it is. And we don't want to go into the other detail than that. That's just simply the change. We're going to just assume we have the one service and we can have up to six service disconnects. And we just learned that we can't put them all in one enclosure anymore. But we have our options. And you know what? And I really did not see the, the big six breakers. Um, I'm familiar in data centers. I used to go in and see a lot of the services where they would come in with a big cabinet and they'd have six, maybe 250 or 300 or 400 amp breakers in there feeding other panels. Can't do that anymore. Now, if that was a feeder, it'd be okay. But feeding it from a feeder, be okay. This rule doesn't apply. But it was for services and that was a, that was a problem. And now you just you can't do it anymore because you can't kill the power to the bus. Creates a hazard. All right. Hopefully I made that really clear. Okay, so drum roll. We're going to get to, I don't have any drum roll cued, so we're going to get to what I consider the number one change that's going to affect one and two family dwelling units. Okay, now, this was brought into the 2017 code and it almost made it, well, it wasn't brought into it. It was in the process. It didn't make it. So it got more support this time from the fire marshals. It got more support from NFPA. It got more support from people who understand what it takes to go to be first responders, emergency responders. And you get to a dwelling unit and you have to either take a hatchet to something and then you potentially could cause a hazard to the workers. You didn't know if you disconnected it. Okay. And many parts of the company, they're looking at this change and going, we did this anyway. We put an exterior emergency disconnect anyway, or we didn't even call it that. We just put the exterior disconnect because that's what we wanted. And so some parts of the country, this is significant. Other parts of the country, they're like, ah, I've done this anyway. So here's the change. The National Electrical Code in the 2020 edition under section 230.85 is going to require a readily accessible exterior located emergency disconnect to now be installed on all one and two family dwelling units, okay? Now you have three options for this, okay? And all three of them have a marking requirement. Now, one of the options that we're gonna talk about, which is a meter disconnect, probably not something we'd see on one and two families very often. That's usually meter disconnects we see in commercial, but it's gonna be okay. And we're gonna be able to use it now if that's what you want to do. It is another option, okay, to be able to do it. So we have three options here, and I'll kind of explain each one of them. 
If you look on the screen, for those that are following along over on youtube.com forward slash master the NEC, you will see a list there of three items that have to do with 230.85. For those on the podcast, I'll obviously describe them the best as I can for you listening over there on the podcast. All right, number one option, service disconnects marked as following. It has to be marked emergency disconnect as well as service disconnect. So how would I do this? Okay, well, I could put my NEMA 3R rated panel enclosure with my main breaker with all of my breakers in it outside instead of inside. And it's done all over the country. Very common on the West Coast. Very common in Arizona. You would think it wouldn't because it's so hot out there and the ambient temperature, but okay. But anyway, very common on the West Coast. Not so much on the East Coast. So this is just simply putting my panel outside or maybe this is putting my single service disconnect outside. Maybe just a 200 amp single enclosure main breaker so that I can actually put my panel interior because we don't want to violate 230.70A1. So I can't have my, my main breaker or I can't have my service conductors running inside of a building. I can't, I have to terminate them outside or nearest point of entry because we don't want to have those unprotected conductors running through the building. But in this case, if I put that service disconnect, maybe a single disconnect only in a single enclosure, Outside, now I've got a feeder that's feeding a remote distribution panel inside, and I can put it anywhere I want in that dwelling. And it's okay because it's protected by the feeders protected. Okay, that's an example of this. And on that that main service disconnect, I just have to put the service disconnect label, usually comes with one, but now I have to also mark it as emergency disconnect. Now I have to remember that they also have to comply with the marking, and all of these do with 110.21b, and just remember, it has to be adequate for the environment that it's being located in. Obviously, it's an outdoor location, so it can't be just an ink jet or something like that. So it's got to be substantial. It's got to be able to stay there and endure the conditions that it's going to be uh, put into, you know, snow, rain, sleet, uh, sun, baking it, all this time. All these things have to be taken into consideration. So Another option, like I said, I could put my NEMA 3R panel outside and just run all my brand circuits into that and all my feeders into that. Um, but again, I can go with a single service disconnect outside and mark it accordingly. Perfectly fine. So that's my option. The next option I have is a meter disconnect. And again, there's a list of the items that can be connected on the supply side of a service disconnect, which is telling us that a meter disconnect is not a service disconnect because 230.82 is telling us what we can install on the supply side of a service disconnect. Makes sense? So we still got our service disconnect, okay? But now we can have what's called a meter disconnect. Now, this meter disconnect Typically, it's going to be in commercial applications, industrial. It was always located on the supply side of the meter socket so that they could kill it before they pulled the meter so that you didn't have any loads that might be going. And so you could get an arc you try to break it. Okay. Um, but I have, to be honest with you, seen it on both sides of the meter, either side. Again, typically, more often than not, I see it on the supply side of the meter. It makes more sense uh, to kill it because you're trying to kill power directly from the utility. Makes sense? And then you can pull that meter or do what you need to do. Now, a couple significant things. You have labeling requirements for this as well. And all of these have labeling requirements. You're going to have to put labels on it that says, number one, 
what this is, emergency disconnect. Number two, you got to say what it is. It is a meter disconnect. And number three, you're going to have to state very clearly that it's not service equipment. And incidentally, the language that you're going to put on these labels are right there in the code under 230.85. So there's no guessing. It's right there. Okay. So you put that on there. So that tells me that it's not to be considered service equipment, although it still has to be suitable for use as service equipment. It's not service equipment. Okay. So again, it's a meter disconnect, not to be confused with a service disconnect. And it also is meeting the emergency disconnect requirement here in 230.85. So that's my second option. Now, there's a third option. I can use any other listed disconnect switch or circuit breaker uh, and put it on the supply side of each service disconnect as long as, again, it is also suitable for use as service equipment. And as long as I label it as emergency disconnect, and I label it as not service equipment, okay? Now, what's significant about this not service equipment? Well, because it's not service equipment, it's not changing over service conductors to feeders, even though it's obviously conductors are going through this disconnect and then carrying on to the service disconnect. We kind of discussed that at the very beginning again, right? It, it's one of those things that it's, it's not a service disconnect, and it's telling you. You got to tell people, this is not a service disconnect. Now, you're still going to bond all these metal enclosures like they were service disconnects, okay? And the easiest way to do that is to bond it in accordance with 250.142. Use the grounded conductor and make those connections and, and be done with it. This is not a grounding and bonding lesson, but that's probably going to be the easiest way to do it. But you, and you know what? And there's going to be provisions for that to be able to do that. And again, that's in Article 250 not part of the scope of this, this code change, but that's probably the easiest way to do it. Here, we're just giving you options to provide this emergency disconnect for these first responders. So they can literally get there, shut power off, and then do the work that they need to do to try to help those get out of this building or, or this one and two family dwelling, or to save lives, obviously to save lives, but also to try to shut the fire down so that it doesn't spread to other dwellings around and this becomes something that gets out of control and we have a greater loss of life, greater destruction that we just don't need. We just don't need it. So this is going to be a requirement for the 2020. Again, it only applies to one and two family dwellings uh, and it's called an emergency disconnect. You're going to have to label it and it's pretty clear that this is going to take place. And again, if you're on the West Coast, you're probably like, piece of cake. I've been doing this forever. Well, if you're not used to it, it's going to add some cost. It's going to. Now, I can tell you the other listed disconnects, those things can range anywhere from 200, 300, 400, 500 to get something that is SUSY rated, that's suitable for use of service equipment. Okay. It can be quite expensive. And meter disconnects aren't cheap either. Okay, so most people are probably just going to install a NEMA 3R exterior uh, service disconnect and then change over, uh, use option one, and going to call it emergency disconnect, and they're going to call it their service disconnect. Uh, going to have their main bonding jumper in there. They're going to do all they need to do, and then they're going to have a feeder downstream feeding a panel inside of the building. That's probably what people are going to do. 
Um, many of the other folks are probably just going to say, forget it. I'm just going to put a NEMA 3R uh, panel board in a cabinet outside, and that main breaker serves as the emergency disconnect and the service disconnect. That might be their option. But you have options. I don't see many people using the meter disconnect, and I think cost-wise, it's probably cheaper to buy a service disconnect single circuit breaker in a cabinet and utilize it for that and let that be your service disconnect. Okay, I think probably what you're going to find for that. Okay, But again, there's other listed disconnects you can find as well for that application. Okay, Just remember what the application is. Okay, Just remember what we're talking about. Most people are probably going to go with option number one. Okay, Anyway, that's it. That was a great episode. We covered a lot of changes, went a little longer than I wanted, um, but we kind of gave it a 30,000 foot view. We nailed them. We talked about them. We looked at them. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, please reach out to me at info, I-N-F-O at masterthenec.com. More than happy to answer your questions. I always love teaching code, love teaching you. I want to thank you for coming. Uh, we'll have some great topics coming up next week at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Same place, same time, same channels. Till next time, folks, stay safe. God bless. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul 